And let us now continue to glorify him by taking your Bibles and turning with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. As we start that, uh, as I mentioned last week, second coat of paint on Genesis 1, which is very appropriate. Do you smell the paint in the air? If you haven't noticed, there is some stuff going on behind you. It looks really cool. It's good. It's the first time I've seen it. We're grateful for the way that the Lord is working in our church, and particularly the way that He is working through this text. I had many say on the way out the door on Sunday that they had never heard a sermon preached on Genesis 1. They had heard lessons taught in Sunday school, they had read books, they had heard seminars, but very few had actually heard a sermon preached from Genesis 1. And uh, after studying and preparing, I understand why. (laughs) It's a little difficult. And yet, it is God's Word. It is so important, so foundational. And as we look to fill in some of the missing spaces from last week, let's particularly focus in on Genesis 1.24. And I'll read to chapter 2, verse 3. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. For approximately 2,500 years, philosophers and wise men have resounded to us the famous line, know thyself. Know thyself. Supposedly, the statement originally came from the Greek god Apollos through the oracle at Delphi. In the ancient world, this was the navel of the world, supposedly the source of all wisdom. And its most famous inscription being an admonition, a call for us to realize who we are. Even though it supposedly came from a Greek god, the statement is stuck with Christians and non-Christians alike. Socrates, Plato, on the non-Christian end. Peter Abelard, John Calvin on the Christian end. Deists, people who believed in God but weren't necessarily Christians, like Thomas Hobbes and Benjamin Franklin, they resounded the same reminder. And then clear non-Christians like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Ralph Waldo Emerson. All of them affirm the knowledge and the value of those two little words, know thyself. In fact... It is this very advice 
that John Calvin would use to open his magisterial Institutes of the Christian Religion. If you're not familiar with the work, it was his best attempt as a brilliant thinker and expositor of Scripture to summarize everything that the Bible taught in the organized categories. And how would you begin a book that organizes the entire Bible into topics? Calvin did it this way. Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. In fact, the beginning of his second chapter would read thus, It is not without good reason that the old adage always strongly urged man to know himself. Chapter 1, know God. Chapter 2, know man. Forget the theologians for a moment. Forget the philosophers. Does God think it is important for us to know ourselves? Is it relevant? Is it practical? I mean, this could take a really philosophical bent this morning. I mean, does God really intend for us to know ourselves? Well, it would seem from the very beginning of the book that he wrote, it is important. Because embedded in the opening chapter are the two things that Calvin himself would frame his institutes on. One, the knowledge of God. We saw it last week, right? God is the creator king. If there's anything that you need to know about the Bible as you go read through this book, it is that God created it all. But there is a second thing. Embedded within that opening story about the grandeur of God, and it receives very special attention, and that is the creation of man. What God intended humanity to be. It seems like Calvin and company and all the way back to the oracle at Delphi, that they may have been on to something. It seems like it's important for us to understand where we came from and why God created us. It's one of the biggest questions anyone will ever ask. So could it be? That this matters because one's narrative of the human self has impacts on every facet of one's life? To answer that question, I'd give you a hypothetical. I think you'll notice that the hypothetical isn't too hypothetical, but let's hypothetically imagine that the narrative, the popular narrative of mankind today is that he is an accident and that he is just some form of an elevated animal. He's just materials and molecules. And he comes into being and then he expires into nothing. Let's just say that some people believe that. What would be the practical impact of a life lived underneath that understanding? Or it certainly have a personal impact If life's all one big cosmic accident, why all the suffering? Why all the pain? Why are we even here in the first place? I think it would lead to depression on the one hand, which it seems that society at large struggles with, or just an all-out craving for dopamine response on the other. Do you know what I mean by dopamine response? Anything that triggers pleasure signals in the brain. So it could be drug usage, It could be alcohol. It could be streaming media like Netflix. But man moves from one thing to the next thing to the next thing looking for the next hit of pleasure because if it's all going to end anyway, we better make ourselves as comfortable and happy as possible before it's all over. Personally, if that's the narrative, life is insignificant. It not only has personal impacts, but it will also have social impacts. Because if we're just a big big random collection of molecules, if we just happened some way and then we disappear into nothing, if life really is just about us climbing to the top of the food chain and exercising our dominance as long as we can till we die, what would be some logical outcomes of that society? 
Well, abortion would be prevalent if people believe that. Because why would you inconvenience yourself with this mass of tissue that's going to come out one day and consume your resources? Euthanasia would be a thing. Why would the elderly, who eventually begin to tax on our convenience, even need to be around in the first place? Or what about the handicapped? The mentally or physically handicapped? How then would society, with this narrative, respond to them? Well, they're an inconvenience. And if it's just a dog-eat-dog world anyway, why not go ahead and remove the inconvenience? Do you see how the narrative begins to have implications? We see the impact of this not only personally and socially, but we also see it sexually. And don't worry, I realize there's children in the room. But the truth of the matter is, when you change the narrative of man, one of the most practical impacts is one's sexuality. How do you think Sigmund Freud ever became popular? He was the first one to posit that man is generally a sexual being, and he is just seeking sensual gratification in his life. And everything that he does is motivated by satisfying that particular impulse. And you know what? So many people have conveniently bought into that narrative that they are actually oversexed. They have so focused on that one little slice of life that they're bored with it at this point and now need to modify it in some way to make it a little more exciting. So then we end up with homosexuality or the need for someone to alter their gender identity to try to be a, a new self. Monogamy goes out the window because after all, that's what we were made to do. Personally, socially, sexually, there are impacts. So the narrative has to be clear. But the question is, is this all too modern? Do you think Moses, when he was writing the, the book of the law, the Pentateuch, these first five books that are actually one book, do you think he's concerned about these things? I mean, it's one thing for me to say this, as a conservative Christian. But is this really what Moses was concerned about? Did he really want those Israelites on the plains of Moab about to enter into the land of Canaan to actually understand their story? Not just the Creator God, but also their role under Him? It seems so. Because he is going to devote a lot of time to it in this opening chapter. The question before us is what is the significance of man? Who are we? Can we know ourselves according to Scripture? And the answer is going to come in the text, but I need to warn you about something. This is not a philosophy book, nor is it a science book. It is scientific, it is factual, it is actual. But what we have here is a narrative. And so while... We may want to answer this question with a square box. The Scripture gives us a round peg. So you might find the answer a little dissatisfying unless you can be flexible. And so I'm going to tell the story of man today straight from the Scriptures. I'm going to treat it almost like a book. This is book one of the story of man. If I were to give it a title, and you may find it shocking, but I'll try to prove it throughout, the title of book one of the story of man, The Kings of Creation. And it will unfold in several chapters. And I'll give these brief headings. Now, I'm only giving the chapter headings because some of you like things to write down. I say this all the time when I'm doing a narrative. Please don't try to remember the chapter headings. I'd, I'd rather you follow the story, and then when we get to the end, let's discern its significance. Do you understand the strategy, where we're headed? All right, chapter 1, the context. We're not going to read it again, but beginning at chapter 1, verse 1, 
Going all the way to chapter 2, verse 3, we saw that there was a primary story going on here, and that was that God created a good world. The majestic opening in the beginning, God created, gives way to a mysterious setting in verse 2. The earth was without form and void. We saw that last week. And then from that point forward, the Creator King begins bringing forward life and purpose out of the uninhabitable and insignificant. That is so important. That is the overarching storyline. I will say it again. In chapter 1, the Creator King begins bringing life and purpose out of the uninhabitable and insignificant. So how is he going to do this? How is he going to get to this spot? Well, he starts with days 1 through 3, forming a world that was without shape. And we saw that. And then in days 4 through 6, he begins to fill that world with significance. So he gives it shape, he gives it significance. But he's not done yet. Because it seems like with each new day of creation, things seem to be building. They seem to be getting better. I mean, you start off with just light, and then you end up with just air, and then land, and you're thinking, nothing impressive yet. Then you get vegetation. And then he starts filling in the vegetation with, with lights and sun and, and moon and stars, and you're thinking, oh, this is awesome, this is cool. And then by day five, you actually get living things. You get sea animals, you get sky animals. And right now, you've just got kind of a neat zoo. There's not much going on. The one thing that the Hebrew mind would have been the most concerned with is the land, and yet it's empty. And this is where day six comes into play. So as God is taming the chaos, bringing significance out of insignificance, the context tells us, it leads us into the second chapter of this story on man, and that is what I will call the contrast. And 25, look at it again. And God said... Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. Now, pause here for a moment. What I want to point out as we're reading verses 24 and 25 are some of the things that you may not have pointed out or picked up on the first time you read through the story. You know how it is, like if you read a, a Sherlock Holmes novel, or if you watch a, a very, I mean, a, a well-produced mystery flick of some kind, you get to the end of the movie, and then all of a sudden you recognize these things coming back into play that seem so unimportant at the beginning. Sometimes they even give you the flashbacks to help you remember how everything begins to come together. What I want to do here, now that we've been through this one time, I want to point out some things that are going to become extremely significant in this story. And they set up a contrast. There's going to be an intentional contrast set between the way that God creates the animals and the way that God creates mankind. There's three things in particular you should be on the lookout for. The first one we already read Notice in verse 24, he says, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Now, that's going to be different than man. We'll see it in a moment. There's a second thing to look out for. Did you notice how in verses 24 and then in verse 25, you keep hearing this phrase repeated over and over again, according to their kinds, according to their kinds, according to its kind. You notice the repetition? It seems like there's a pattern. These animals are created with a certain pattern, and then man is going to be created with something different, and we'll see what that is. And then finally, you end verse 25 with the classic statement, and God saw that it was good. And you'll notice that when you get to the end, so there's a contrast being set up here in chapter 2. There's a new stage, though, that develops, and it brings us into a new part of the book, if you will. Notice it's a two-stage creation. Verse 24, and God said. Then verse 26, then God said. 
The same thing happened on day three. Two different stages of creation. So also here, you have two different stages of creation. But anyone who's paying attention to the literary flow of things is going to pick up on something. In phase one of day six, there are only four sentences. In phase two of day six, there are twelve. It seems like he wants to put the focus on what's happening on this second day of creation. It's going to get the lion's share of the attention. Animals are created, they're organized, and he's like, all right, that's great. Now let's move on to what's really important, which gets us to chapter 3, the consideration. The consideration. There is a deliberation, a consideration that takes place in verse 26 among the Godhead, and it sets things on a totally different trajectory. Notice it. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Do you see how that's different? Let us make man. It kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? Hasn't God been using that let phrase, you know, all throughout? I mean, if you go back and you even look in your Bibles, you can find the beginning of the little paragraphs. Verse 3, let there be light. Verse 6, let there be an expanse. Verse 9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered. God said, verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation. Verse 14, let there be lights, small l. Verse 20, let the waters swarm with creatures. Verse 24, let the earth bring forth. Verse 26, let us make man. He's just been speaking, speaking, speaking. Things are being created, created, created. And here, the text pauses to show that there was some form of deliberation among the Godhead. And for people like us who believe there is only one God, your ears should perk up when you see the phrase, let us, plural, pronoun, Make man in our image. This is something that Jewish scholars for millennia now have not been able to explain away. There are certain times, admittedly, when the word God will be used in the Old Testament text and it's in the plural, but they know that it is a plural of majesty and that it is referring to God. It does not mean that there are three gods. We don't believe that there are three gods. There is only one God. And yet, he expresses himself, or excuse me, this one God exists in three persons. Now, all the persons aren't mentioned here, but we already had indication of another in verse 2. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so right in the beginning, at Genesis 1, all of a sudden, everything's just being created, 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 and now there's deliberation. Now there's a conversation going on among the persons of the Trinity to consider what would be the best way to finish off the creation. It's mind-blowing. And what is it that they're considering? Well, they say, let's consider a different design. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Remember those phrases, according to their kinds, according to their kinds, according to its kind. According to my image. The animals will be modeled after one another. There's going to be land animals, there's going to be creeping things, there's going to be wild animals. But man, he is going to be modeled after God himself in some way. Remember that term image. It it literally means a representation. If I show you a picture of my children, it is a, a representation of them. But in the ancient Near Eastern mind, that particular word for image that's repeated throughout this doesn't just mean a representation, like a picture, but an authoritative representation. So in Daniel chapter 3, for example, when Nebuchadnezzar sets up the statue of what we presume to be himself and tells everyone that they're supposed to worship it, that statue represents him. To borrow from our modern parlance, could you imagine if some street kid like took a can of spray paint, if they would have had it in those days, and defaced the statue? What do you think actually would have happened to him? 
Well, if the Hebrew children were thrown into a flame for not bowing down to that thing, I imagine that that kid would suffer a similar fate. You're thinking, it's just a statue, it's just a piece of stone. Not in the Hebrew mind. It actually represented the person, the king. Now, that's an impersonal illustration. Let me give you a personal one. Did you know that in the ancient Near Eastern world, the king, or probably what you'd be most familiar with, the pharaoh, was considered to be, in the minds of all, the image of God. He was a god. He represented the gods. He was the human likeness representation, the focal point of what the gods were like. And that was a position, listen to this, that was reserved for only the elite monarch, like one person over the headship of hundreds of thousands of people. And yet here, it seems like the Trinitarian design is going to be for everyone to possess this special capacity to represent not just the gods, but God, the Creator King. This is all part of the plan. So God is saying, let us, let's consider making man in our image after our likeness, and it wouldn't just be a different design, but he would also have what I'm going to call a delegated authority. Notice that phrase that's repeated over and over again. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Moses like phrases it in every way you could possibly think. Whatever is not man, man will rule over all the earth, and every animal in every category. The sun's not going to do this. The moon's not going to do this. The stars aren't going to do this. The animals aren't going to do this. Mankind is going to be the one in God's plan to do the ruling. It's pretty impressive to me because the phrase image itself would almost be just like a symbol. God confers to us a symbol that we represent him. But when he starts deliberating or planning that we have dominion, something Factual or actual is taking place. There's a difference between what I'll call formal authority and functional authority. Formal or symbolic authority is seen every time a little kid gets on an airplane and the captain's standing at the front and he gives him an honorary little pin so that he can be the captain. I've even seen it at times where the captain makes an announcement, we like to thank our captain back in the road, you know, and then mentions the little kid's name. But it's just an honorary title. And no offense to anyone who bears this title, but it's almost like the term President Emeritus. I get it, it's an honor, but it doesn't mean anything. Or I remember as a kid, the first time I ever heard the term, the keys to the city are being presented to so-and-so. And I'm like, wow, that's awesome. Like, he gets to go wherever. But the keys to the city... Functionally, they don't mean anything. It's just a formality. But what we see here in the plan of God is no formality. It seems that God would, would stamp his image upon man and that he would actually intend for mankind to rule in his stead. He doesn't just give them the badge, he tells them to sit in the cockpit. I don't know. I don't know about the plan. It just seems like there were better ways to do things. You know, maybe one of the better ways to do things would just be rule over creation by divine fiat. What I mean by that is God just rules. Why not God just rule? Why not he just say, all right, I'm the, I'm the captain of this ship. I'm running everything. You guys do what I say, and it's just a direct rule. He doesn't do it that way. Or what about this one? This one kind of makes sense to me. Because instead of just giving everybody the capacity to represent God, shouldn't they earn it? This is what I appreciate, actually. I mean, at least in a logical sense, about Hinduism and Buddhism and their manifestations of reincarnation. Like, doesn't it kind of make sense that you would work your way up to the gods? 
Like you would move your way up somehow? No. God says everybody's going to be born at the top of the caste system, if you will. Everybody's going to be born as the king of creation. Or a third option, and the most popular one of the day, would be that you would be a slave at the bottom for the rest of your life. This was the popular belief in Mesopotamia at the time. Uh, A lot of uh, non-Christian archaeologists like to say, hey, you should note the similarities between the creation account of the Bible and other pagan creation accounts. And it's actually a fascinating study because you can see where they got their ideas from. But they messed them all up. I want to tell you one, and I'm going to expand on it a little bit because this was the popular mindset of the day. It comes from the Enuma Elish. It's from Mesopotamia. And this is their opening story of the way the world is created. Basically, you have a bunch of ordinary gods, and they battle one another. This one god, Tiamat, loses. When he loses, half of his corpse becomes the earth. Deities, all the other little gods that sided with Tiamat, the guy that got chopped in half and turned into the earth, they get punished by Marduk, the one who won. And you know what their punishment is? They get forced to be basically the custodians of the earth. They have to go tend to Tiamat's other half of his body. Labor on earth is beneath their dignity. They think it's absolutely humiliating. So they complain to Marduk over and over again and ask for some better working conditions. Ultimately, they strike a deal. This is the layman's version. They strike a deal. They build Marduk a temple. And in exchange, Marduk tells them, hey, you know what? You don't have to clean the earth. Let's create man and they'll clean the earth for you. It's such a humiliating job. I know you don't want to do this. Here, let's create somebody to do this for you since it's so uh, undignified. And so Marduk creates man from the blood of a fallen God to do the dirty work for the gods. And here's the text. It's crazy. Marduk says, Arteries I will not, K-N-O-T, and bring bones into being. I will create Lulu, man be his name. I will from Lulu, man, let him be burdened with the toil of the gods that they may freely breathe. They bound him, Kingu, the god that they're going to cut to whose blood will become mankind. They held him before Ea, inflicted the penalty on him, severed his arteries, and from his blood he formed mankind Impose toil on man and set the gods free. That was the option of the day. Now, I don't know what you're walking away with there, but let me tell you what I'm walking away with. Oh, wow, man is just an afterthought. There was no design. This just came from the moaning and complaining of some other gods, and they didn't want to do the dirty work. You You know what I'm thinking if I'm buying into that narrative? Who am I? I might as well just be a bunch of molecules. I might as well just be an animal. The gods don't care for me. Now contrast that. See it. See that. Get that picture. Not just our modern one. I'm talking about the ancient one. Get that picture. Contrast it with what God did. He creates a good world. And he designs a plan in which he could have ruled himself, but he's going to include all humanity in with him to rule and reign over it. He's going to share his glory and his majesty with mankind. He's going to place them on top of a good and well-ordered creation. Life now is important. It means something. At least that's the plan. That's the consideration. But how about the execution? Is this the way that it goes down? The Trinitarian Council set forth this plan. I called the chapter the consideration. Now let's look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
Notice, there is a poem here. You see that offset print? This is the first poem in the Bible. There is a poetic exclamation that God did exactly what he said he was going to do. What's the verb that's repeated over and over again there? Create, create, create. Remember, that word was only used twice prior to this context. It was used in Genesis 1-1 to talk about God's special creation of everything. And then it was used to talk about the sea monsters because they would have thought that that would have been something like a rival God. And Moses wanted them to be clear that he even created that. But create is a special verb. In the Hebrew Bible, this particular word is only used with God as the subject. And here, this special word will be employed three times in a row so that mankind would be able to look back on this record and know that he is God's special creation. The animals, God said, let the earth bring forth. Here, God says, I'm going to create. His fingerprints we'll see in chapter 2 are all over us. There is something special going on here, and that image that he planned to give, he actually did give. It repeats it twice, created in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Now, let's, uh, let's geek out for a moment theologically. For those of you who don't like this kind of stuff, give me 60 seconds and then tune back in. What is the image of God? What do we mean by that? Well, I, I think that the, the simplest explanation that I could give, I'll repeat it three times, but this is the best I've got without taking you through hours of debate. The image of God is man and woman's unique and interdependent capacity to represent the Creator King to His creation. The image of God is man and woman's unique and interdependent capacity to represent the Creator King to His creation. It's the last time I'm going to say it. The image of God is man and woman's unique and interdependent capacity to represent the Creator King to His creation. There's a formal aspect to this definition. It means that we are like God. You ready for another big theological word we don't use very often? It means that we in some way display God's communicable attributes. And we don't use the word communicable very often, but at this time of year we, we do when we talk about catching a cold. That is a communicable disease. That is something that can be transferred from one person to another. Cancer, on the other hand, is incommunicable. You can hang out with somebody with cancer all you want to. You're not going to get it. When we talk about communicable and incommunicable attributes of God, we are talking about those things from God from which we can catch. Ways in which we can be like Him. God is omnipotent. Will you ever be omnipotent? Absolutely not. Keep dreaming. But the text to this point has disclosed God to be a good and wise ruler. Can mankind be good and wise? Oh, yeah. And that's exactly how God created him to be. Formally, God created man like him, good and wise. There may be other ways, but that's at least what's here in this text. But there's a functional part of it too. You can't just say it is a formal thing. It is a functional thing. It was designed, we were to be good and wise rulers. You can't be a ruler if you don't rule. <laughs> the, 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 the image was that they would actually, I mean, you can make it a verb, they were going to image God. They were not just going to be an image, but they were going to image God as they ruled over creation in a good and wise way, male and female. And I love how he includes that here. I mean, here we are in a world where this seems like to be such a confusing topic, and yet right in chapter 1, God is going to insert these two words, not man and woman, but particularly male and female, to know that both male and female would represent God in a unique way, but they would represent God in an equal way. That's why I say it's interdependent. Both man and woman together would have to show what God is like. Now, dudes in the room, I know that you think you know, you're, you're all that in a bag of potato chips, but listen to me. There are certain parts about you that cannot fully represent God apart from your wife or other women in creation. And women, it goes the other way. We're different, and yet we're equal. And God has designed it 
that the single image of God would be express, expressed in plurality. Hmm. Kind of sounds like what was going on in verse 26, doesn't it? A single God would then say, let us make man. God not only considered, but he actually created. He made men and women unique and equal. He made them both to be kings. Now here's where I would like you to push back, push back. Argue. Kings? Kings? Really? Kings? I mean, you just spent last week, Justin, talking about how we were created and we needed to submit ourselves to the king. But really, I mean, here, the text is actually presenting us as some form of royalty? Well, I think the contrast points to that. The consideration among the Trinity points to that. I think the creation points to that. But I could be wrong. So let's look at the next chapter before making any final conclusions. Chapter 5, the coronation. The coronation, verses 28 through 30. We'll take these one at a time. Look at verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, And subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Do you see what's happening right at the beginning? God is pronouncing a royal blessing upon His people, giving them the capacity to do three things. The first one that we see here is to fill the earth, to reproduce. Now the animals are going to reproduce too. But man is going to have the unique privilege, the unique opportunity to propagate the earth with more divine image bearers. Lizards will produce lizards and leopards leopards. But man will produce more creator kings. Why? Because as the earth would continue to expand and as the the animals would continue to spread out, guess what? There would need to be more regents over this world ruling in God's stead. And so here is the God who creates life out of nothing, giving mankind the capacity to create life. It is a wonderful thing. How tawdry and cheap that our world would look upon children and babies and birth and conception as some form of an inconvenience. I know several of you have more kids than I do, but any time that Tanya's at Target and somebody asks, oh, well, how many kids do you have? And we say, we've got five. Can't you tell? (laughs) I guess they assume we're babysitting someone. And you know you've heard this before. Oh, I'm sorry. Man, that must be inconvenient. They have no idea of the blessing that God himself has pronounced in this. You know what I see when I look in the face of my kids? Creator kings that represent God himself. Do they do it perfectly? Absolutely not, nor does their father. But that is a privilege. God gives them this divine, kingly authority to create life, and not only to create life, but to rule over it. Have dominion. Remember, he repeats it again. Have dominion over everything. Every category of animal, you're going to have dominion over. And then notice what he says in verse 29. This is mind-blowing. And God said, behold, he didn't just stop it there, you're going to rule. But he said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food. In the popular ancient Near Eastern conception, man brings food to the gods via sacrifices. And here in the Bible, God brings food to man. He says, you're going to create and you're going to consume. Enjoy this world. He says, not only rule over it, but also have dominion over it. 
or subdue, excuse me, is the word that was used in the King James that I grew up with. Subdue means to use it for your advantage. Rule means you have a responsibility. Subdue means to enjoy. Tame it so that it's good for you. So he's not only going to say create and advance the divine image, he's going to say consume and rule over the world, and then he's going to entrust them also with responsibility. After all, they are kings. Kings rule something. Create, consume, conserve. Notice, and most people, I think, miss this. I don't know. I haven't heard any sermons on Genesis. So, But look at verse 30. It's in the quotation. God is still speaking in verse 30. God does not turn and talk to the animals here. God is still speaking to man. And notice what he says. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And look at the close quotation. God is telling man that, hey, all this that you're enjoying, they need to enjoy too. Preserve life. Keep life going. Now listen, I, I grew up conservative, old school, like North Carolina, southern, you know, like kill animals, walk on the grass, cut down a tree, kind of, you know, living. I mean, that's just the way I grew up. And I actually still believe that creation is for our consumption. We can use it for good, for our own pleasure. But it's interesting to me, though, that there actually is, dare I say it, a note of conservation here. For those of you who didn't grow up that way, you know, when I go to the zoo and these people are all worried about the penguins on this island being extinct, you know, they're actually onto something. The fact that any animal would have ever gone into extinction is an expression of mankind's poor rule. God says, keep these things alive. Now, don't worry, Genesis 9 is going to give them the capacity to kill and eat these things. Another story another day. Well, actually, that story will be told at lunch today when I eat meat. <laughs> man is still over creation. But there still is a sense in which man is supposed to be a steward of creation. He conserves. He's to keep it going. And guess what? If it all goes bad, whose fault is it when you're holding the keys? <laughs> it's the managers. It's the kings, the created king in this instance. We'll see how he does later. So there's a coronation, create, consume, conserve, and there's this kingly commission. Man is supposed to be a good king. And you know what? I, I tried to think, because I was reading this, and I told the pathway, I found two theologians who agreed. Herman Bavnik says that only man, all, even though all creation pictures God in some way, only man is the image of God, the highest and richest revelation of God, and therefore the head and crown of creation, or Louis Burkhoff said it even simpler. Man, in Genesis 1, is standing at the apex of all the created order, crowned as king of the lower creation. These are just theologians. What about the Bible? Do you remember the text that we read in Scripture reading this morning? Psalm 8. Where David says, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you think it's going to be a psalm on creation. And he starts off talking about how you've created the heavens and the skies. And then he asks, what is man that he could even compare to these constellations and these planets? And you think he's just going to take off to talk about how great the planets are. And he does a total 180 and he says, what is man? You created him. To be over the creation. He's more important than the stars and the sun and the moon. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and he will rule over all creation. It is not a theological thing, it is a biblical thing. God created, commissioned, coronated us to be kings. Then, chapter 6, the culmination. Look at verse 31. Now that he's made these kings, he set them in place. What does God say? And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. 
God has surveyed and examined everything, and how did he end every day of creation? It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And here, all of a sudden, note that contrast again, it was very good. There's actually the the Hebrew word translated behold there. It's an exclamation of excitement. Anytime you see the word behold, the author, the narrator, has gotten excited in some way. It's like an onomatopoetic word, you know, like when you say oh, and then you put an exclamation by it. He is excited that God would actually crown man. Now it's all very good. He's like trying to say, like, oh, this is awesome. It's very good. Because man is finally at the pinnacle of creation. The way that God intended to turn the chaos into an orderly creation is done, as evidenced by verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. Look at it. Thus... The heavens and the earth, remember that's that mirrorism, those opposite ideas that convey everything. The heavens and the earth, everything was finished. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done. All right, I've taken Hebrew. I'm, I, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I've taken Hebrew. But thankfully, other Hebrew scholars tell me on good authority, and you find this in a normal lexicon if you look it up, that the word that we so often translate rest, God rested on the seventh day, is actually the, the, the Hebrew word Sabbath, Shabbat. And it doesn't mean rest as much as it means cessation of labor, you stop working. Why would I be uncomfortable with the word rest? Because it implied that God exhausted himself and that he needed a break. Listen, the infinite, immortal God did not need a break. But he stops. Why? Some of you are thinking, well, because we're supposed to stop. Well, yeah, maybe. But that's actually not it. You know why he stops? Because he's done. Because in the narrative, in the story, you're supposed to walk away thinking like, oh, man's in charge now. God did exactly what he intended to do. This, this was his plan. If God keeps monkeying around with it, something's wrong. But he doesn't. He lets it go. It repeats three times that it's done. He's done. It's almost the idea of him stopping to survey and enjoy the work that he had done. Now, does this have implication for the divine image bearer? Yes. Is it as strong as I would want it to be? No. I will wait till a message on Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11 to talk about the need for Christians to rest. Just know right now, you were created, not creator. You need a day of rest. If you have any objections to that, talk to me afterward. But let's get back to the point of the text. God's done. It's the culmination. And what finished it off? When could he, pardon the phrase, finally sit down? When he seated mankind on the throne of the universe. That is a high privilege. So the philosophers and theologians have told us, know thyself. What do we know from this account? What do we learn? In a sentence, it is that God, the Creator King, made us to be created kings to represent His good and wise rule over creation. I can't communicate capital letters in a sentence. So let me say it again and spell out the capitalization. God, the Creator King, capital C, capital K, made us to be created kings, small c, small k, so that we would represent His good and wise rule over all creation. That's quite a contrast with just 
group of cells that originated on accident and that fades into nothing, isn't it? I think practically this does a few things for us. I only mention two for time's sake. The first, and I've prayed this all week, that it would recapture for us a sense of dignity. Not just for ourselves, but for others. When your children annoy you, when your boss threatens you, when your family hurts you, when evil people sin against you. Did you know that they are still created in the image of God? That phrase, the image of God, will be used not just for Christians, but for everyone. And I think we would do well in our gospel presentations to other people Not just to start with, you're a sinner. You deserve to go to hell. What kind of good news is that? Let me tell you good news. Here's some really good news. God originally created you to rule the world, to represent him. That's where we start. And oh my, how we've fallen, and I'll get there. But we start with God as creator and the dignity of life that he gave all men, and yet they forfeited that, they perverted that, they twisted that to pursue their own kingdom and not his. But we look at everyone, whether it be the transvestite or the homosexual or the pedophile or the autistic, as an image bearer of God. It restores dignity. But there's a second thing. It should recall some questions. You should be thinking throughout this entire thing, what in the world went wrong? Say, Justin, God may have originally made me as a created king, but I can't even keep a goldfish alive, much less the universe. What happened? Image of God got twisted, distorted. See, what happened was mankind would eventually, instead of imaging God and being primarily concerned for his kingdom, they would be concerned for their own kingdom. That is called sin. They would make choices that would put them at odds with God. It would disfigure them. It would twist them. And now when we look at the image of God in people, you know, it's like looking at a carnival mirror. You get an idea of what was there. Sometimes you can catch it at the right angle and see some really good things. But formally and functionally, we lack that goodness, we distort that wisdom, and we pervert that rule. And our only hope, our only hope of getting it right again, of getting back to the way things used to be, is Jesus Christ, the image of God. You are a image of God. He, according to Colossians 1, 15 to 20, is the image of God. And it says in that very same text that he would come, he would redeem, and he would reconcile all who would trust in him. He would reconcile them to himself. You know what the word reconcile means? It means to straighten out. The mirror got all weirded up. It's all cloudy. It's disfigured. It's distorted. He will straighten it out. For all who rely on him. And he restores the capacity to image his good rule once more. When we believe in him, we can be what we were made to be. I'm not trying to sound like Tony Robbins. This is the Bible. God made you for more. He intends for you to rule over your life well. Guess what? What you do with your kids should be good and wise. And when you work this week at your workplace, it should be good and wise. And when you interact with other people in society, whether they be non-Christians or Christians, it should be good and wise. That's what God wants. And that's what He gets when you trust in Christ. 
He begins to gradually form you into his image according to Colossians chapter 3. But Philippians 3.20 and 1 John 3.2 both affirm that when Jesus finally returns and we see the true image of God, we are instantaneously, perfectly changed into that image. Don't be frustrated with the dead goldfish. There will come a day when you will once more perfectly represent the Creator King. If you don't know that, if that's not true of you, if you have questions about that, please talk to us. There is nothing we would want more than for you to be able to rule and reign the way that God intended. But until that time, when Jesus comes... Let us as created kings continue to seek the help of our creator king. And we'll do that through a closing song. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. And I'm very pleased that this final song that we'll be singing today is a prayer. It is a prayer that perfectly captures our heart. We want to rule over creation in the right way. We need God's help to do it. And so let's pray together in closing, singing the words of that old Puritan prayer titled now, O Great God, Please Stand.